At the white coat ceremony that precedes medical school, every physician in training is asked to swear a Hippocratic oath, an oath of ethics derived from an ancient Greek medical text. In this recitation, they are asked to promise to do no harm or injustice to any of their patients. It seems pretty straightforward since medicine is after all a profession centered around healing and helping people transcend some of their most difficult and trying experiences. But things get a little bit more complicated the further that students delve into the medical profession. They're repeatedly encouraged to be apolitical, to not stir up conflict, and to simply stay in their lane, to be the best doctors in whatever specialty or particular area of the field that they've chosen. Dr. Edja Enduom is one of the physicians who tries to break these boundaries. He's a neurosurgical oncologist by trade and currently a professor at Emory University. But for many years now, he's also been one of the founding members of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. Dr. Enduom and his colleagues speak widely about how advocacy is as necessary to being a good doctor as actual medical practice and the science behind healthcare. He speaks about how his Hippocratic Oath and his commitment to the medical profession requires that he look out for his patients and vulnerable populations in every sense of the word, not just through practicing medicine, but also through advocating in the best way that he is able. My name is Ria Dange. In this episode of Let's Talk Reform, Antoinette Charles and I sit down with Dr. Edja Enduom to ask him about how he pursued a career in both advocacy and medicine, and why, according to him, it is so important for healthcare professionals to get involved in criminal justice advocacy, because the school-to-prison pipeline affects us all. And it's the job of a responsible physician and healthcare professional to get engaged on anything that could affect their patients, vulnerable populations, and the society of which they're a part. Full disclosure, you are the first neurosurgeon that we have had on our podcast, and I think we would all love to hear a little bit about what led you to pursue the work that you currently do and how that eventually tied into your interest in a criminal justice reform and advocacy. So it's funny, I, I end up being the, the first neurosurgeon or only neurosurgeon a lot of people know, which is funny to me because I happen to know a lot of neurosurgeons, haven't trained as one. Um, but uh, again, thank, thank you very much for, for having me on this and for having the podcast all together. I, was able to listen to a couple of episodes. It's been fascinating to hear the various people and uh, kind of their approaches uh, to uh, to this work. Uh, the Campaign for Youth Justice uh, episode was actually particularly uh, interesting because we, we, we partnered with them some time back. Um, uh, as far as my journey to neurosurgery, um, you know, uh, I have been interested in medicine, surgery, whatever, for a long time. And so that, that became kind of part of my story as a kid. Um, is that I would tell people, you know, I was going to be a doctor. Uh, my mother likes to tell in origin, part of her origin story, uh, there's kind of two stories. One is she'll say that uh, when I was born, the doctor looked at my fingers and said they were so thin and long that I was either going to be a pianist or a surgeon. Um, so she told me that from when I was very young. And uh, Then another was when I was like four or something and went to the pediatrician and apparently was rattling off the, the names of the various instruments. Oh, that's a stethoscope. Oh, that's a thermometer. And I, you know, named two or three, and, and then at one point, I looked at my mom and said, "Look, mommy, I'm practically a doctor." Uh, and so she got it. She got a nice uh, kick out of that one. Um, so anyway, so I everybody in the family was like, "Okay, well, you're just going to be a doctor. I'm interested in science." And 
um, at some point, maybe seven, eight, I started saying I was going to be a surgeon and then a brain surgeon because I heard it was really, really hard. And uh, then actually was gifted uh, the book, Gifted Hands, uh, by an aunt of mine uh, when I was 11, which it's, it's funny. In, in my age of physicians, uh, there are a lot of people that read that book. I, I suspect there are less now. Um, I don't know that for sure. Um, but I did really, I was very drawn to the descriptions of neurosurgery as being a very challenging field, uh, one that uh, required a lot of technical ability, one that had great challenges uh, for the surgeon and helping patients, but something different every time. Um, and that was fascinating to me, um, you know, not going to an office, being able to work with my hands, help people. Um, and that just kind of, I, I was enraptured by that. Uh, in college, I, you know, took a look at everything. Um, I actually started majoring in physics uh, in college. Um, but by the end of the first year of honors physics, the questions on the problem sets were like, you know, if you were on a spaceship and you threw a baseball and a beam of light came off the sun and hit the baseball, what color would it be? And it, it was just like, okay, this is just a little bit too abstract for me. Um, so I switched to bioengineering and was doing that and was in the Bay Area. And there was a lot of exciting stuff in, in, in biotechnology, but that also just didn't really do it for me and uh, ended up in the lab uh, after a seminar in sophomore year, boot seminar, uh, we were talking about uh, brain and behavior um, in neurodevelopment. So it was like, you know, kind of nature versus nurture sort of thing. And uh, Dr. Susan McConnell uh, led that seminar and she was phenomenal. And uh, we learned a lot about the brain, brain science and all, all that sort of stuff. And um, basically uh, after that, I was again uh, in love with the brain and how it functioned. Uh, and even though she was pulling me towards kind of straight PhD lab stuff, I knew I still needed to keep the patient part in it. Um, and that meant going to medical school. And then in medical school, the brain and behavior block uh, was really the one that I was super engaged and other people hated neuroanatomy and I loved it. Um, and just looking at the slices and understanding the anatomy and different nuclei in the brainstem and then saw a couple craniotomies and it was over. Um, and uh, neurosurgery was where I was gonna be. That's amazing. It's a little bit funny that you're telling us this now because actually Antoinette and I have both expressed an interest in neurosurgery and medicine in particular. So yeah. we're kind of along the same path, just at different, different landmarks. Absolutely, absolutely. Now it's interesting, I, I am trying to change my pitch. There was a time when I would tell uh, young trainees like you, no matter who it was, it came to my lab and I could, I could tell exactly what I'd tell them, almost verbatim, I'd say, neurosurgery is the specialty that you do when you try everything else and you hate all of them. Um, but the only thing you can see yourself doing is neurosurgery. And the reason I say that is because uh, it's the longest base residency um, it's one of the most rigorous, if not the most rigorous, you spend most hours in the hospital and it's challenging. Um, you know, there are, and there were for me definitely days and nights where you're like, you know, is this really worth it? And you're, you're just struggling and you're, ch you're challenged by things that are happening. And you're up all night and you're missing, um, events with your, your family and friends that are going on in their twenties and early thirties and having a ball. And you're like, why did I do this exactly? Other people are becoming associate professors and you're still in training. I'm changing things around a little bit. Um, and, and the reason for that is, is that neurosurgery needs uh, more people that are different from the, what people would consider to be the stereotypical neurosurgeon. And that has happened. Neurosurgery has, has become somewhat more diverse over time, not nearly enough. Um, and the culture of neurosurgery is changing in part because of that. There are several 
uh, women neurosurgeons. Actually, I think they just either they just had a webinar uh, from WINS or about to have one about motherhood in neurosurgery, which is not something you would have been able to find on Twitter um, when I started training. Um, but you know, because the culture is changing, because there are more women and underrepresented minorities um, in neurosurgery, and so the more we bring in, the more the culture is likely to shift and the more palatable the whole thing for everybody is going to be. And so now I say, if you are interested in neurosurgery, um, you should explore it. And if you continue to be interested um, and you have some doubts, you should fight through the doubts and find people that'll help you make it. Um, because you know, I, most of the people that I find uh, that are engaging and driven and motivated, I think could succeed in neurosurgery. So um, if you are interested, then you should try it. Thank you. That is really awesome advice. We're also really interested in that other aspect of your career that we mentioned, which is to do with advocacy. So can you tell us a little bit about how your path to medicine and neurosurgery and your journey there have kind of influenced your inclination toward parent, patient advocacy and how all of that came about? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I've, I've told people if, you, if I had an advocate resume, there'd be a big hole in it. Um, because when I was in, uh, you know, finishing up high school and into undergrad and medical school, I did a lot of student leadership things and working with the community. Um, and then I got to neurosurgery residency and, um, you know, I was busy, uh, one, uh, and I was also vulnerable to, uh, being in a specialty that, uh, is actually quite conservative, um, on the whole, again, shifting, but on the whole is. Um, and uh, my perception at the time was that being outspoken about things that might not necessarily be well received by my colleagues could be adverse to my career. Um, and you know, as people of color, uh, I'd say that, that most of us often feel that there's this risk, this reputational risk when you're speaking out and being an advocate on things um, that you know, the people that you're talking with and going out and having beer with aren't necessarily um, completely in, in, in lockstep with you on. And so I struggled with that. Um, and particularly very, very early in my residency because I was, you know, I hadn't rotated at Emory when I came here and you know, just didn't know my place. I just wanted to make sure that I was safe in a lot of ways. And honestly, you know, around then, I would have probably told you that things were getting pretty good uh, for underrepresented minorities, black people in the United States. You know, Obama got reelected, um, you know, I knew, a lot of people across the political spectrum who had uh, voted for him in 2008, but not in 2013, I mean, in 2012, but he won anyway. So it's like, okay, well, maybe, you know, things are gonna go really well. And around then um, is when uh, really what changed was technology um, and camera phones became more and more uh, prevalent. Um, and even, I guess, before there were videos, there was Trayvon Martin, right? Um, and so Trayvon Martin happened, and that was a really big thing for me. Um, not, not least of which because my son was born in December of 2012. Um, so that's you know around the time that this happens when I became a father, um, when that was hitting the news. Um, and so the Trayvon Martin incident and the verdict really hit me hard. Um, and I was trying to understand that and the, the things around that and why that had happened and. Um, you know, kind of the assumed criminality that was at the bottom of that and um, just, you know, the problems, the vulnerabilities of Black men and young Black men in the United States. Then right after that is Michael Brown, and then there's Eric Garner, and then 
and on and on. John Crawford and uh, Tamir Rice, back to back to back to back. And I'm looking at all these incidents, and I'm a neurosurgeon. Um, you know, I do treat patients that have trauma. Um, you know, patients that have gunshot wounds and that sort of thing. And, I, and I'm trying to understand again what I could consider to be the root cause of all these problems. Um, so around that time, again, I, I go back to Stanford, where I went to undergrad, and just so happened that Michelle Alexander was receiving an award uh, from the Multicultural Hall of Fame at Stanford for writing the new Jim Crow. And there was student after student was going up and introducing her and saying um, how the book had been transformational for them. It changed their lives and their approach to civil rights and everything that was going on. And then um, I said, well, let me read the book. So I read the book. Um, and it was eye-opening for me. I mean, it, it was uh, really quite transformational. And, and there were things that uh, I maybe somewhat intuitively thought about race and race relations and the war on drugs and uh, certain terms and, and things that were used politically, um, but hadn't really ever had an academic kind of lay it out. Um, certainly not in my biology classes or engineering classes, right? Um, but this is all laid out and referenced and perfect. And it, it, it you know, something clicked for me and to me, what drew it all together when you go Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and all that was simply um, mass incarceration creates this quote unquote logical thought for assumed criminality for black and brown individuals. So if you, um, I, I just saw a, a, uh, a clip of Senator Kennedy from Louisiana uh, in the wake of the- Full disclosure, you are the first neurosurgeon that we have had on our podcast. And I think we would all love to hear a little bit about what led you to pursue the work that you currently do and how that eventually tied into your interest in a criminal justice reform and advocacy. So it's funny, I, I end up being the, the first neurosurgeon or only neurosurgeon a lot of people know, which is funny to me because I happen to know a lot of neurosurgeons, haven't trained as one. Um, but uh, again, thank, thank you very much for, for having me on this and for having the podcast all together. I was able to listen to a couple of episodes. It's been fascinating to hear the various people and. Uh, kind of their approaches uh, to uh, to this work. Uh, the Campaign for Youth Justice uh, episode was actually particularly uh, interesting because we, we, we partnered with them some time back. Um, uh, as far as my journey to neurosurgery, um, you know, uh, I have been interested in medicine, surgery, whatever, for a long time. And so that, that became kind of part of my story as a kid um, is that I would tell people, you know, I was going to be a doctor my mother likes to tell in order to part of her origin story uh, there's kind of two stories one is she'll say that uh, when i was born the doctor looked at my fingers and said they were so thin and long that i was either going to be a pianist or a surgeon um, so she told me that from when i was very young and uh, then another was when i was like four or something and went to the pediatrician and apparently was rattling off the, the names of the various instruments like, oh that's a stethoscope and oh that's a thermometer and i you know named two or three and, and then at one point I looked at my mom and said, look, mommy, I'm practically a doctor. Uh, and so she got it. She got a nice uh, kick out of that one. Um, so anyway, so I, everybody was like, okay, well, you guys are going to be a doctor. I was interested in science. And um, at some point, maybe seven, eight, I started saying I was going to be a surgeon and then a brain surgeon because I heard it was really, really hard. And uh, then actually was gifted uh, the book, Gifted Hands, uh, by an aunt of mine uh, when I was 11, which is it's funny. In, in my age of physicians, uh, there are a lot of people that read that book. I, I suspect there are less now. Um, I don't know that for sure. Um, but I did really, I was very drawn to the descriptions of neurosurgery as being a very challenging field, uh, one that 
uh, required a lot of technical ability, one that had great challenges uh, for the surgeon and helping patients, but something different every time. Um, and that was fascinating to me, um, you know, not going to an office, being able to work with my hands, help people. Um, and that just kind of, I, I was enraptured by that. Uh, in college, I, you know, took a look at everything. Um, I actually started majoring in physics uh, in college. Um, but by the end of the first year of honors physics, the questions on the problem sets were like, you know, if you were on a spaceship and you threw a baseball and a beam of light came off the sun and hit the baseball, what color would it be? And it, it was just like, okay, this is just a little bit too abstract for me. Um, so I switched to bioengineering and was doing that and was in the Bay Area. And there was a lot of exciting stuff in, in, in biotechnology, but that also just didn't really do it for me and uh, ended up in the lab uh, after a seminar in sophomore year boot seminar where we were talking about uh, brain and behavior um, in neurodevelopment. So it was like, you know, kind of nature versus nurture sort of thing. And uh, Dr. Susan McConnell uh, led that seminar and she was phenomenal. And uh, we learned a lot about the brain, brain science and all, all that sort of stuff. And um, basically uh, after that, I was again uh, in love with the brain and how it functioned. Uh, and even though she was pulling me towards kind of straight PhD lab stuff, I knew I still needed to keep the patient part in it. Um, and that meant going to medical school. And then in medical school, the brain and behavior block uh, was really the one that I was super engaged and other people hated neuroanatomy and I loved it. Um, and just looking at the slices and understanding the anatomy and different nuclei in the brainstem. And then saw a couple craniotomies and it was over. Um, and uh, neurosurgery was where I was gonna be. That's amazing. It's a little bit funny that you're telling us this now because actually Antoinette and I have both expressed an interest in neurosurgery and medicine in particular. So yeah. we're kind of along the same path, just at different, different landmarks. Absolutely, absolutely. Now it's interesting, I, I am trying to change my pitch. There was a time when I would tell uh, young trainees like you, no matter who it was, it came to my lab, and I could, I could tell exactly what I'd tell them, almost verbatim, I'd say, neurosurgery is the specialty that you do when you try everything else and you hate all of them, um, but the only thing you can see yourself doing is neurosurgery. And the reason I say that is because uh, it's the longest base residency um, it's one of the most rigorous, if not the most rigorous, you spend the most hours in the hospital and it's challenging. Um, you know, there are, and there were for me definitely days and nights where you're like, you know, is this really worth it? And you're, you're just struggling and you're, and you're challenged by things that are happening. And you're up all night and you're missing, um, events with your, your family and friends that are going on in their twenties and early thirties and having a ball. And you're like, why did I do this exactly? Other people are becoming associate professors and you're still in training. I'm changing things around a little bit. Um, and, and the reason for that is, is that neurosurgery needs uh, more people that are different from the, what people would consider to be the stereotypical neurosurgeon. And that has happened. Neurosurgery has, has become somewhat more diverse over time, not nearly enough. Um, and the culture of neurosurgery is changing in part because of that. There are several uh, women neurosurgeons. They actually, I think they just, either they just had a webinar uh, from WINS or about to have one about motherhood in neurosurgery, which is not something you would have been able to find on Twitter um, when I started training. Um, but, you know, because the culture is changing, because there are more women and underrepresented minorities um, in neurosurgery. And so the more we bring in, the more the culture is likely to shift and the more palatable the whole thing for everybody is going to be. And so now I say, if you are interested in neurosurgery, um, you should explore it. And if you continue to be interested, 
um, and you have some doubts, you should fight through the doubts and find people that'll help you make it. Um, because, you know, I, most of the people that I find uh, that are engaging and driven and motivated, I think could succeed in neurosurgery. So um, if you are interested, then you should try it. Thank you. That is really awesome advice. We're also really interested in that other aspect of your career that we mentioned, which is to do with advocacy. So can you tell us a little bit about how your path to medicine and neurosurgery and your journey there have kind of influenced your inclination toward parent, patient advocacy and how all of that came about? Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I've, I've told people if you if I had a advocate resume, there'd be a big hole in it. Um, because when I was in, uh, you know, finishing up high school and into undergrad and medical school, I did a lot of student leadership things and working with the community. Um, and then I got to neurosurgery residency and, um, you know, I was busy, uh, one, uh, and I was also vulnerable to, uh, being in a specialty that, uh, is actually quite conservative, um, on the whole, again, shifting, but on the whole is. Um, and uh, my perception at the time was that being outspoken about things that might not necessarily be well received by my colleagues could be adverse to my career. Um, and you know, as people of color, I, I'd say that, that most of us often feel that there's this risk, this reputational risk when you're speaking out and being an advocate on things um, that you know, the people that you're talking with and going out and having beer with aren't necessarily um, completely in, in, in lockstep with you on. And so I struggled with that. Um, and particularly very, very early in my residency because I was, you know, I hadn't rotated at Emory when I came here and you know, just didn't know my place. I just wanted to make sure that I was safe in a lot of ways. He goes on to say that there are certain facts and one of the facts that he then brings up is that uh, black people are more often criminals than uh, white people. Um, and so that's, you know, making the implication that that's why, the, uh, you know, there's more policing of those neighborhoods and why more incidents and, and, and more violence. And that's that backlog. So if, if you incarcerate a very large percentage of black and brown people, you then are able to reach back and do So if you actively do that, you can reach back and take that as your statistic and say, hey, well, they're criminals. And that's why we're incarcerating them. Circular logic. Um, and then if you do that for long enough, you create that quote unquote fact that black people are more likely to be criminals. And so a young 13 year old who uh, just went to the store with Skittles and is walking home um, is someone that the neighborhood watch will look at and say he shouldn't be here because he's very likely to be a criminal and it ends up in a family encounter. Um, so, you know, uh, someone who's in a Walmart and playing with the BB gun uh, is an imminent threat to everyone in the store in an open carry state, John Crawford. A uh, 12-year-old playing in the park uh, with a plastic gun uh, called in to say, hey, there's a kid with, you know, a gun. It looks like it's fake. Um, can be shot within, you know, fractions of a second of arrival of the police officer. And nothing happens to the police involved. Um, so having put all that together for myself, uh, I immediately thought, well, okay, if mass incarceration is the civil rights issue of our time, and I consider myself a leader uh, in the community, always have considered myself as that, that's how my parents raised me to be, um, then I have to lead on this issue. So how do I lead on this issue? I'm a neurosurgeon. Um, at this point, it's, it's 2014 going into 15. 
um, I'm in fellowship, uh, focusing even further from neurosurgery broadly to brain tumors, specifically at MD Anderson Cancer Center, um, and ask myself the question, so what's my role? Is my role to go to Black Lives Matter rallies? Um, is my role to go to a Black Lives Matter rally as a physician? Should I be rallying physicians to go to other groups' events to say, well, the physicians feel this way too? So I reached out to a good friend and uh, a mentor uh, uh, of mine, uh, someone I know for a long time, and Zinga Harris. She'd been talking about a lot of this stuff and what's been going on in, in uh, mass incarceration and the need for criminal justice reform. So I sent her a Facebook message and I said, Zinga, tell me if I'm crazy, but I feel like we need a group. And I look, this doesn't exist. Physicians for criminal justice reform or something like that where physicians are specifically doing the things that we as doctors can do to help. And she replied like right away and she was like, we have to do it, let's do it, absolutely. And so we got some physicians together and a few months later, we, we spent a lot of time crafting the issues we wanted to focus on and uh, Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform was founded in May of 2015. Wow, that is truly incredible how you can recognize an issue and despite feeling a little uncomfortable with the way that the culture of neurosurgery is, you still decided to take a stance and like establish this group, not just for neurosurgeon, but for all physicians. And that's really exciting to hear and see. And we love some of the work that you've been doing in your group. And understanding how some of these implicit bias can roll over into the healthcare system at large, how can healthcare providers be educated on social justice initiatives to actively mitigate some of the perceptions that they may have with the patients that they may see. Because in class one day, we were reading a paper about how a physical therapist was treating a person who had a bandana and how he had these implicit biases about how he's a gang member and how you know he deserved to be shot and all these things and then later he found out that that wasn't even the case it was like an accident and the bandana wasn't even gang related so like it was kind of like an interesting paper just discussing his implicit bias and I'm like okay but so what like you're stating the issue but how do we go about in addressing this issue to provide a better environment for patients who don't necessarily come from the same background as us and don't necessarily have the same clothes that you know would be perceived as someone who would be of higher influence how can we fight those injustices yeah that's such a great question um some medical schools and training programs do it better than others. Um, you know, when I was at Penn, we did have a social determinants of health uh, course. Um, I think it was okay. Uh, you know, we did learn about things like Tuskegee uh, and that sort of thing. Um, there, uh, when we were learning about substance abuse, they did talk about the uh, cocaine epidemic in, in uh, Philadelphia and kind of just talked about its impact on uh, everything and uh, physicians and how that impacted their lives. I, I can't say that uh, I, I think that any of the training that I did did a particularly good job um, of, of really helping us identify any particular implicit biases in us as individuals. That that really wasn't, uh, you know, in 2000 and I'm dating myself, but 2002 to 2006 when I was in medical school, that wasn't really the buzzword that it is right now, even though the literature existed. Um, and so now there's you know, a little bit more of people taking implicit association tests and that sort of thing. 
but then people are resistant to those too. So, you know, people higher up have been around for a long time. We never heard about this thing. Implicit bias are very resistant to the idea that there's some invisible force within them uh, that is actually making them do things they would consider racist. Actually, talking to some, some colleagues, I, I was trying to explain this process and explain to them that I took an implicit association test um, that looked at women in the workplace. And halfway through the test, I knew my results were going to be awful. Um, I just, I could try and associate you know, the, the woman's face with, you know, the, the words that were about career and everything was, my brain was, was locking up. And I know this about myself. Um, I know that I make the types of errors that people who have that type of implicit bias make. I know that if I go to a nursing station and I see someone sitting there in scrubs, um, if I don't think beyond my kind of reptile, you know, sorting brain um, and just act, I'll immediately think, okay, they're, they're probably a nurse. That's, that's what my brain will tell me, that, that kind of more primitive part of my brain. If I overrule that and take a second and look around, who else is there? What are they wearing versus everybody else? Let me take a look at their name tag. What did I come here for? What type of nursing station is this? What type of people normally sit at this computer versus that? And I can figure out, oh, well, that person's actually a surgeon like me, like because they, they actually have a surgical cap on, and obviously it says MD, whatever. So I would address that person as doctor or whatever, you know, just it's a different interaction, right? But I have to try. I, I actually have to try to make that work that way. If I don't try, then I'm going to make an error. If you don't know you have a problem and that you have to try to overcome it, I mean, I mean there's, there's no way you're going to get it right. Um, so, so, you know, what trainings are out there? I mean, there's millions of books and trainings and, you know, how to be anti-racist. Um, you know, I think it's a phenomenal book that I, I read with a book club of people that I have. Um, a lot of that has to be self-driven, um, you know, uh, and, and it's got to be until you get to a point where the entire medical establishment knows that it has a problem and it needs to go out and get resources to understand why it has a problem and fix it. Um, are there groups I think are doing good work? Obviously, I think you know the National Medical Association is doing fantastic work around uh, this and, and other things. I think that Doctors for America has some uh, programs that it's working on that, that does help uh, work on advocacy and that sort of thing. Obviously, I think that everybody should be a member of Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. Um, uh, if you're a physician, a medical student, or ally who wants to just help steer us medical professionals in the right way around these things. Um, we, we welcome all types. I mean, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and, and on our website, uh, pfcjreform.org. Um, but, but there's a lot of work that's, that's there to do. Um, so since I came to Emory, um, I reached out to uh, Dr. Maura George and, and other physicians that run the social determinants of health curriculum here at Emory. Um, there's also a justice involved coalition uh, faculty across the, the, the university who are interested in these sorts of things and I'm trying to form alliances and learn from them and um, you know get to know other community associations better um, and, and I'm saying all this is to say that I don't unfortunately I don't think that there's a, a really a good one place where it's a one-stop shop I think it's stuff like what you all did and said well I found some like-minded people and we're interested in this problem and uh, school to prison pipeline and uh, nobody else like us is doing this work so we're going to have to do it and that's that's kind of been my 
of the way I've approached a lot of things in leadership is, you know, if there's a void, um, then I'll fill it. And, and I don't want to say that there's no physicians working on these issues. I, I, I constantly find and I tell people that I'll meet physicians who are doing a lot of work professionally, um, personally, uh, as individuals, um, doing great research on the cardiovascular outcomes of being incarcerated or uh, looking at the outcomes of, of patients that have substance abuse disorders versus don't in, in various uh, workplaces. There's off, uh, obviously the National Correctional um, uh, Health Network who's doing great work on uh, improving outcomes for inmates and making sure that they they have access to subspecialized care and everything that they need when they're incarcerated. So there's there are thousands of physicians across the country who are doing excellent work in physicians for criminal justice uh, reform type areas. They just don't know it yet. Um, and so we try and bring them together um, and have conversations and, and learn from the different people doing things in different states and um, see if we can help bring the rest of our profession along. I especially love what you said about getting together with a group of like-minded people and finding a niche. And it sounds like that's definitely what you've done with your organization. So can you tell us a little bit about what kind of work you're doing now and how that might have changed more recently with the focus of national attention largely shifting toward diversity, inclusivity, and anti-racism? Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. Um, you know, there's been, there've been a couple shifts, right? So the first thing that happened last year was the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, I don't know that I can say that we anticipated this, um, but uh, what ended up happening is there were a lot of opportunities around that to speak about and speak with um, a lot of people who were working on decarceration efforts um, around the COVID-19 pandemic to, uh, several of our members wrote op-eds uh, to talk about um, uh, how the conditions in jails were obviously gonna lead to pandemics um, of COVID-19, how those that were vulnerable need to be removed uh, from such environments, how uh, youth uh, needed to be taken out of facilities and, and, hope, and hopefully taken home. We signed on to a lot of letters and, and kind of wrote medical language to support um, other groups like the ACLU in Colorado uh, to try and uh, help them in their efforts to, to do this, to decarcerate. We had a fellow uh, with Doctors for America, Kim Cullen. Uh, Dr. Cullen was fantastic um, working on a lot of this stuff, um, along with several others of our members. So that was, that was a, a lot of 2020 uh, was doing that sort of work. Um, coming into 2021, um, new administration, new day, um, we've actually been trying to build out our, our forces a little bit. Um, uh, the, the sad thing, but true thing about this particular work is that we don't have to wait very long for another event to happen to inspire people to, to wanna find an outlet to work on this sort of stuff, right? They, they come in waves and uh, they happen and people are looking for people like myself when I was a resident um, will then start searching and see well, what can I do as a physician and they'll find us and we'll we'll put them to work. One thing that, that we really want to do and this is one of the things that I learned as I got deeper into the world of criminal justice reform which is very basic to anyone who's been in the field for a long time but it was new to me was just how local um, criminal justice reform and that sort of work is. Um, and how, how widely it varies from state to state um, when you're talking about things like raising, raising the age of criminal responsibility. Um, I mean, it's, it's a completely different landscape in, in Georgia as it is in say North Carolina. Um, and so we've been trying to recruit and onboard uh, local organizing chairs who can become experts 
and what's going on in their state, the bills that are coming up that um, we need to support or shut down, um, the uh, efforts to, de to decarcerate um, in their cities, the efforts to defund the police in their cities and what alternatives they can push, um, diversionary programs. Um, uh, all those things are really happening at the local level. And so we, we really need people in every state. It's not uncommon for us to get a request from a criminal justice organization in a particular state looking for support and we're scrambling to find someone in that state. So we're trying to find point people in every state that we can identify um, who are becoming experts on these things um, to work with various groups. Along those lines, we've been working with some great students from the American Medical Student Association, um, which for people in medical school is another great uh, training ground, proving ground for uh, those who uh, want to be advocates in the future um, or who are advocates now, want to in the future continue to be advocates as physicians. Um, and uh, they've helped us with, with putting some toolkits together for, for various states um, that will talk about here are the, the big topic issues in Georgia that are uh, around mental health uh, care uh, improvement. Um, and you know, these are the bills that we need to focus on and the things that we can say and people that we can talk to um, to try and increase support for those bills. And eventually we'd like to have that for every state and have them continuously updated. And um, so that you know, whether you're in the medical field or, in, or not, you can use that as a resource and take that and know that there are a few quick actions you could take to really make a difference in, in your community. It seems like when doing work in this field that there has to be a lot of collaborations going on, whether you're working with lawyers or educators or um, other positions, I definitely feel like there's so much importance in getting people across all spectrums of expertise to really make it a rich program. And considering the fact that states do vary in some of their issues and some of their policies, what are some standardized policies that your organization upholds across the nation? Raising the age of criminal responsibilities is a big one. Um, and uh, as you all talked to uh, Marcy from the, the Campaign for Youth Justice about, um, that was in some ways a bigger issue before, but it, but it remains one now. Um, and I was just reading about uh, a young woman who apparently with her mother, they did something, they rigged uh, how she got uh, voted for homecoming queen. And they were going to try her as an adult. And, and I, I don't know how much money you get for being homecoming queen or as a scholarship or what, but why try them as an adult? This is something that you can handle at the, the youth level um, and, and not make it something that, that scars them for their, for their entire lives. Um, and so, so you do have the states that are still automatically uh, charging uh, people at 17. Um, as adults, it's not 16 like it was before, but there are still some states that, that, that are, are 17. Um, so that needs to be changed across the board. But even the rules that allow uh, uh, judges or uh, prosecutors to charge people, not automatically, but to, to use their discretion and to charge uh, youth as adults in say what they consider violent crime, um, even those need to be reformed. Another big one recently, um, it's kind of gone under the radar for a lot of people. The Supreme Court drastically weakened um, the, 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 the recent decisions from a conservative Supreme Court um, to, to decide uh, that life without a chance of parole uh, for youth uh, was essentially unconstitutional um, and, and something that required a very specific test from the judge and for them to very specifically consider whether 
the, the youth was incorrigible. So it was someone that could not be rehabilitated. And it was something they had to specifically and explicitly consider and state that on the record before they could even consider putting someone in the life without parole. Supreme Court cases in which the Supreme Court of the United States upheld that children are constitutionally different from adults in terms of culpability and in terms of the ways that they can be sentenced, particularly for a life sentence without the possibility of parole. In 2012, the Supreme Court decided in the joint case of Miller v. Alabama and Jackson v. Hobbs that for people under 18, mandatory life without parole sentences violated the Eighth Amendment. And in Montgomery versus Louisiana, which was decided four years later in 2016, the court mandated that judges consider certain factors in order to prove incorrigibility. That is, the fact that an adolescent could not be corrected in any way, behaviorally speaking. Then, and only then, could that adolescent be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. But recently, in 2021, the Supreme Court decided in the case of Jones versus Mississippi that that standard of permanent incorrigibility wasn't completely necessary. Associate Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote that a separate and specific factual finding of permanent incorrigibility was not required to sentence a juvenile to life without parole, thereby altering the standard that had been established previously. second ruling, they made it a, a firm test so that you could go back and evaluate any youth who had been given life without parole. And again, it, it made the standard for the judge. They had to look at that and be able to definitively say, for whatever reason, haven't considered it, had a hearings, et cetera, that this was someone who could not possibly be um, rehabilitated. And in a recent judgment um, in a single state, uh, they decided to go on the record and say, well, you know, that's not exactly what they said. That's not what they meant. So we're just going to change it a little bit. So the judge doesn't have to explicitly consider whether they can be rehabilitated or not. If they have a good reason, they can just say that life without parole is, is okay. If anything, society has certainly moved in a direction that is more understanding of uh, the neuroscience and the neurocognitive changes that go on in a person's brain and development where the frontal lobes are not fully developed and really at 18 or even 21. Uh, so then to then say that someone who's been charged as a youth life without parole and to not even consider uh, whether they could be rehabilitated. So, so those are the sorts of things that, that we're still we're still fighting against. Uh, Sarah Vincent, um, our youth justice um, task force director, who's phenomenal, uh, also in Georgia, um, psychiatrist who works a lot in this space. Um, it's on a lot of national committees. That, that's one of the things that, that she's, she's trying to work on now. You completely read my mind with the last thing that you brought up because I was just about to ask you about the recent Jones versus Mississippi decision and the fact that the Supreme Court decided to relegate those decisions to the hands of uh, state courts, essentially, and how it was sort of playing with that standard of incorrigibility that was initially set, as you said, pretty recently in the case of Montgomery versus Louisiana. I actually had a really interesting discussion with someone in my lab who is a psychiatrist who was formerly a lawyer. 
And he was talking about how a lot of these policies don't necessarily have a basis in science or healthcare. How do you think we can move toward reforming that and making sure that people who have background knowledge about things like neurology, cognition, psychiatry, psychology are actually weighing in on decisions like this that could influence the lives of youth across the country? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I'd say there's a couple answers to that. One, I certainly feel that have it, the fact that judgment happened, it's, it's almost like a, it's like a, almost a personal feeling. It's like, you know, we weren't, uh, we haven't spoken up loud enough. We haven't written enough about this. We haven't written enough op-eds about the science. We haven't written enough white papers or, or you know, amicus briefs. Um, to judges when things like this are happening uh, so that they can understand just how ridiculous such a stance is. Now, I'm a bit of a pragmatist too when I'm not being a blind optimist, and so I do understand the current makeup of this Supreme Court, and I don't know if they would be swayed if I had written my own textbook on this, but uh, I think that scientific fact, which, you know, as we all know, is Unfortunately, a little bit under attack uh, in our current society, but nevertheless, um, that's our forte as physicians is scientific investigation, um, speaking definitively on what should be ground truths um, and being able to share that with people in a way that they understand. And if the court doesn't understand it, well, then we have to go to the public and the public um, should understand these things and know how important these things are so that when they're making political decisions on other issues that these are issues that they will also consider. Um, certainly uh, within the various states, since they kind of pushed it down to the states, um, you would hope that we could continue to influence on a state by state level, um, those, those judges and the various judiciaries so that they hopefully make better decisions um, that uh, in some ways can obviate what the Supreme Court did, right? Because those judges and those states still do have their own discretion to be able to apply or not apply uh, the standards that the Supreme Court has now kind of weakened. And speaking about really getting the voice of the citizens involved in governmenting their own cities, actually one of the people that we spoke with in our recent podcast interview talked about the fact that we really have to call out what we want in order to get it. And the fact that, you know, a lot of the citizens don't necessarily attend town halls and when asked or given the opportunity to speak, they can't necessarily participate due to like work or things of that nature. So what are ways that you and your colleagues are working to include the voices of the people who are impacted in these communities to include the voices of the incarcerated population as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a fantastic question. Um, yeah, and I, I can't say that we're doing a fantastic job of it yet. Uh, I know that efforts often include uh, uh, petitions um, in trying to get the voices of many, many new people on one thing. Um, you know, everybody has their lane and their role to play. Uh, you know, people talk about protests. I, I think protests are phenomenally important, right? Um, you know, uh, before I moved down to Atlanta and took this position in Emory, um, as a, I was at the National Institutes of Health. And um, I lived in a small neighborhood in, uh, near Bethesda, and we had a neighborhood group. And my wife and I, at one point, she, and she's an attorney, we decided, I don't know what 
it was that particularly pushed us, but there were some of these discussions about what was happening with the George, George Floyd. And we decided to push the neighborhood on the neighborhood group. You know, we, would, we had kind of let some, some comments go and we were just like, you know what, we need to just start saying what's true, countermanding things that people are saying about rioters and whatever. There was a peaceful protest being organized for, the, for some high schoolers and people were all up in arms. And, um, we ended up organizing a group of neighborhood uh, people that, that went to that protest. And then our neighborhood actually started holding its own uh, socially distant uh, protest uh, uh, once a week. Um, and there were um, you know, a group of individuals that come you know, along the road with their signs and you know, have their you know, honk their horns and whatever. And, and out of that, some people reached out to us directly and they started doing their reading and, uh, and that sort of thing and started reaching out to their representatives uh, about these issues. Um, so, I mean, that's one small way that I, I tried to do that in a small group that, that we were in. And um, it's something that we're hoping to bring to you know, the community we end up settling down in, in, in Atlanta as well. Um, as far as our group, uh, we try and speak very broadly about things that we're talking about. We try and talk about it on social media. Um, I know that there are people that follow me for brain tumors that are every once in a while see something that I post like, oh, wait, where did that come from? Um, you do that too? Um, and you know that I might be the only person in their timeline who talks about social justice issues. Um, so if they don't hear it from anywhere else, they hear it from me. Um, in neurosurgery, uh, we published a, a letter to the editor, um, you know, not about criminal justice reform, but about incre increasing the uh, representation of Black people in neurosurgery. And we talked in that a lot about systemic racism and um, mass incarceration and just social determinants of health and how those impact neurosurgery and neurosurgeons. Um, and then we wrote that letter. Um, so trying to do that in the profession as well. Um, I don't know, it, you know, it's, 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 it's definitely tough still to organize people, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but I, I like to think that getting education and information out there is helpful, um, you know, whether that's through social media or um, again, writing op-eds, and I think that, you know, getting things out in the lay press where, you know, you're reading the newspaper and you come across something and it's like, oh, wow, there's a physician who's, who's talking about this. That's, that's fantastic. I think that's, um, you know, those, those are the ways that, that we can help people know what they need to say and maybe give them the words that they didn't know they had to explain uh, to their local council member or city board about, about the things that are important and why things need to change. That's amazing. I was wondering, you shared a lot of really amazing avenues toward advocacy on the trainee level, on the, on the attending level. And now I wanted to ask, what kind of advice would you have for someone who's looking to go into healthcare with an eye toward advocacy? For, for medical students that are interested in going to advocacy, the, the, the big thing is mentorship. Okay. Um, and that's for anybody going into anything, right? Um, is that you need mentors to help steer you uh, through where you want to go. And I'd say, you know, in an ideal world, you have a mentor who um, is doing the type of advocacy that you want to do, and is also in the specialty that you want to be in. Um, it may be that there's a couple of different people that you have a kind of advocacy mentor, you have a specialty uh, mentor, kind of a scientific whatever mentor, and you should always try and have a mentoring team of people that are experts in the various things um, that you want to do. Um, there are particular landmines in, in different specialties and, and things in, in that you, you have to consider. Um, you know, I, there's a reason that my advocacy kicked up towards the end of my fellowship when I had a job in hand and, uh, you know, another backup <laughs> uh, and not 
when I was applying for residency. I like to think things are changing. I like to think they are. I don't know that they are yet, but I like to think they are. I know that a lot of the medical students who matched this past year in neurosurgery, um, there are several of them, uh, including Dr. Gurgis and um, Dr. Clark, Julian Clark, um, who have been outspoken on social media and have engaged with uh, neurosurgery and talked about uh, race, for example, and George Floyd and criminal justice reform and stuff that they've done. Um, and they matched. So I like to think we're getting to the point where that sort of work will also be valued even in some of these more conservative specialties in the same way it might be valued in pediatrics or uh, emergency medicine. Um, I don't know that we're there. I'm, I'm trying in my room, uh, if, I'm in, if I'm interviewing you and I know you've done that work, I'm going to value it, but that's not everybody. So it, it, it's, it's a tricky thing uh, for students to navigate. You just have to be willing to accept that risk that there's a place that uh, you know if you are the most outspoken you can be, there's a place that might not want you because of that, but there might also be a place that wants you because of it. And I think that you know some medical students very courageously um, have taken the, the the position that well if I can't be my 100% authentic self from day one, then then that's not you know a place that I want to be. Um, that means that there are less places you can be, um, but if that's the you know the decision that you're you're willing to make and, and be behind it, then that's good. Uh, as a neurosurgical attending, where where the conflict has come in is now I am becoming uh, the black person that neurosurgeons call when they want to talk about race, and uh, I've been a black man all my life, turns out, but. What I've been training to do is talk about tumor immunology, and I actually give talks on that all over the world. So when I'm getting invited to a particular conference, just for, but only for the race stuff and not for the, the tumor immunology stuff, what is that going to mean for tenure at the end of the day? I don't know that yet. Um, we're trying to change some things in the in academia. One of my personal feelings is, if, well, we're the only people that can do this sort of work. If I'm the only neurosurgeon that can do criminal justice reform work and uh, talk about disparities in neurosurgery, uh, et cetera, and that makes me a world expert, then I should become a professor for that too. Um, that may be the case in the future, we'll see. And I mean, there's, there's a lot of talented neurosurgeons that are interested in this work, including uh, Dr. Mbabuike, uh, Nena, who's in Michigan, uh, Bill Ashley, um, uh, who uh, is in Maryland, um, Mount Sinai, Alicia Adagwa, uh, Emily Rodriguez. You know, there, there's some, so many uh, neurosurgeons who are interested in, in, in working in this space and really pushing um, this sort of thing forward. Absolutely. As you say, the field is rapidly diversifying. It is. Well, not rapidly. Not, it's not rapidly diversifying yet. <laughs> I'm not going to give us that much credit. Um, it is diversifying, it needs to move much more rapidly than it is right now, but there are people who are working on that and I'm hoping to see some change. So are we, and thank you so much for being part of, part of that change and one of the leaders of that. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us, with our audience about the work that you do or bigger takeaways from your journey toward advocacy as a physician? Um, I, I just say that um, I guess a couple things. One, 
uh, physicians are leaders, whether we want to be or not, um, just by nature of uh, how people view us in our communities. Um, so that some people will say the opposite. So there are, there are people who will very firmly say, well, just because you're a physician doesn't mean you should be outspoken about X. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. We've studied a lot. We, we are in a certain position in society. We should use it. And if it's something you're passionate about, you should use that expertise in that position in society to further the important things that, that you have. So if you have that expertise, if there's something you want to advocate for, go out, learn about it. If there are other physicians working in that area, great. If there are not, find your voice and, and work on that area on your own and become the person um, and become the group that, that you think is, is needed there. Um, and there, there, are, there are always people that are going to be willing to help and, and cheer you on along the way. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Let's Talk Reform. You can find more details about Dr. Enduom and his work in the description and bio including links to relevant sources like the website for Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next Wednesday.